Hi there, I'm Karen Dunn of KMD Productions. From the equipment manufacturers to the engineers to the business people behind the scenes, over the years, every member of the pro audio corner of the music industry has become family to me, and it's my job to bring the whole eclectic crew together. Each episode, I'll introduce you to one of these characters and open a window into my world of creating community in pro audio. Thanks for tuning in to One and Done. Hi, my um, guest today is Jimmy Douglas. He's a mixer, engineer, producer. Jimmy, thanks for coming. I'm happy to see you. I've actually seen you three times this year, right? Two virtual events and at the Audio Masters Golf Tournament. Yeah, which was awesome, by the way. I was out in the middle of the course and they said, you have a guest that wants to see you. It's like, who could that be? Who in Nashville <laughs> knows me? That's not on the course. So it was great to see you. My first question for you is, how did you get the name The Senator? I have no idea where that came from. Well, the senator came from, uh, you know, I have, I've, I've been in this industry quite some time. And so there's like, you know, I call it two different careers. Uh-huh. There's the R&B, rock and roll, jazz, all that career working in Atlantic Records. Mm-hmm. And the music changed. And I did all these things. And I was, and I had a, I had a really nice career, as I call it. Uh-huh. Made some great records. And then music kind of changed a little bit. And that's when I ended up with the Timberland hip hop world. Right. And as we were about to launch, there was there was uh, there was Timberland and um, um, another guy who kid was going to be the manager guy, and he was like, "You can't be Jimmy Douglas." I'm like, "Why not?" It goes because that ain't how we doing it. You guys have a name, and I was like, "Okay." So basically, uh, I remembered uh, always stuck with me. The guy who's doing Lauren Hill's records was Commissioner Gordon. Uh-huh. That's what he called himself, That's and I funny. always it just always stuck with me. Like, what? Are you kidding me? And so they were saying, "Well." You know, what What could you be, male? You want to be president? I said, I don't want to be a president. And I was like, you know what? A senator. And let me tell you why. Because basically, without being uh, harsh on the industry, uh, the industry is very political. It's totally political. Every move you make, there's something politics. And I went, okay, I want to be the senator because I'm the guy that has to, you know, kind of be the middleman to get all this stuff sorted out. And there it is. Da-da-da-da. Self-appointed <laughs> name. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've always wondered that and I didn't know the story. So I know you're from Philly originally, right? So you were there till you were 11, I think, and you grew up listening to church gospel music. Then you moved to an affluent area in New York where um, your music experiences were completely different. Do you think that played a part at all in how you record or mix music now, having those two very different backgrounds? Two very different worlds. And, and I think that you know, well, the gospel stuff was that, but it was also the street. I mean, in sure. the street at home in Philly, I'm listening to James Brown. I'm listening to all the real soul, yeah. uh, which, you know, which I don't think they were calling it then that. They were calling it race records or whatever they were calling uh, it. But I was listening to, you know, the uh, the down home stuff, the blues, the da da da, you know, and so I was hearing all of that on a daily basis. You know, you hear some of the pop records as well. I think I would hear some of the, well, the Motown wasn't white, it was still black. Uh-huh. But it sounded, but compared to the the the, the really heavy duty funky stuff, the Patty LaBelle's and all that stuff, it was like it was a little more pop, uh-huh. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but I wasn't hearing the um, the white acts that I heard when I moved into New York City, living amongst um, basically a white contingent. I was uh-huh. I, I grew up in a white neighborhood, uh-huh. and so going to school and in the same experiences we all had, the same radio station, I'm listening to the British Invasion, basically. Which is totally different. Well, is it? Right. Because they, they kind of stole the blues and brought it over and turned it into <laughs> rock and roll. So is it different? But yeah, it, it, was, just, it was presented differently. I'll put uh-huh. it that way. So I know you wanted to be an architect in high oh, school. Yes. So that didn't pan out. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> um, But did, did you take any of the skills that you learned when you were taking classes for architecture? Were you able to incorporate them at all in your recording world? I really believe that's part of how I perceive recording. I mean, it's all a process and you've got to go through it and everything is pretty. So this is an interesting statement. Everything is pretty organized Mm -hmm. and very focused. And yet when it comes to recording, it's really not. But it has to start someplace. Yeah, hi. And and that's what I do with my assistants. When I when I get assistants and stuff, they want to get to the music. I'm like, no, no, go go build this little box for me and do whatever. And I watch them do it. And it's like, if you can't do basic skills of just putting stuff together, you're not going to be able to do this other stuff. Now, to be fair, I used to have a board 
And part of the board is that whole logic of everything is in order and right, organized. Yeah. Right. Well, without the board now and with the thousand tutorials online and a million little things and uh, $200 gets you a, a DAW, uh-huh. uh, an audio DAW. So it's not, it's not exactly the same as it was, but that's where my thinking comes from. Uh-huh. Organization. Is that unique in the industry, your approach that way? I don't think it's unique. I think we all need, I think, like I said, I think we all need to have skills of some sort or have some sort of um, logic running in your head of some sort of flow, some sort of logical flow. Mm-hmm. That's all. And, and, and the parts can change uh, depending on what you're doing, but the logic has to be there. If you're not getting the logic, you're not going to make a very good record, you know? Yeah. I once had, actually, I once had an assistant that I tried to, I tried to train him really badly, really hard, but it's like uh, I have these fuses on my, on my tweeter and my, and my woofer, and then I think the, the tweeter popped and it said, uh-huh. go change the fuse. And he didn't know which speaker to go to. And I went, oh, this is not going to work out very good. <laughs> well, I've heard t- when I've been talking to different people for the podcast, a lot of the engineers, the mixers, producers, they say everybody can come out with this, the same skill level. And that's really not what it is. It's more your ability to hang with people, get along with people, because you're with them a lot, right? So you have to be able to get along with other people. And you can teach skills, right? You can teach the technique, but you can't teach that hang value. You, well, that's, that's totally correct. And that hasn't really, that hasn't really changed no, I... from when I'm this high to I'm, I'm now this high. But, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, one of the biggest things is like the people skills is very, very important. I've gotten thrown off many a gigs for the people skills. I just didn't, I, I either didn't desire to have them that day uh-huh. or I just didn't have it that day or just didn't melt. And so you go your way, right. you know, but in terms of the skills about what we do, so it's like anything, even as if you're a writer, there's a million devices that you may have to write a novel, but you got to know when to use the devices. You can't right. just use them. You know what I mean? You have to go, oh, okay, now we need a conflict over here. So now I'm going to think about, and you pull those in. You don't put those in the first chapter. I'm just saying, even though the knowledge is there, you still got to know when it's time to use it. Right. Or like golfing. Right. You need those 10,000 hours, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's but you need I'm... the repetition. You need to the experience. You need the experience. Yeah. You need to feel. You need to feel. That's what yeah. I believe. That's the difference. And feeling doesn't necessarily quantify, it, it doesn't come in quantified words, feeling. Uh-huh. But you got to know your, you got to know the tools that are in the shed right. before you start. That's right. it. Right. Okay. So your career is really interesting that you wanted to be an architect. You kind of fell into the whole Atlantic Studios um, by happenstance, right? Because of a neighbor. And it seems like you have like the dream career but it's not what you were going after to start with. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you started Atlantic and just your career path? Um, well, yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it's just I was a musician that was playing like all the other kids around. And that's what we did back then. Everybody wanted to be the next. Right. And I imagine it's no different than now. Everybody's got a little computer, a little dog, a little 808, and they, everybody wants to be the next. Now they can rap. They can be the next. Ours was guitar and drums and jetta and keyboards. Right. So, I, you know, anyway, so that was that. And I thought I was pretty good. Actually, I was pretty much one of the better ones around of, of the community I was in. Uh-huh. That was a classic case where they were all very uh, well endowed. So their parents would buy them all the great stuff, all the uh-huh. great gear. I couldn't afford the great gear, but I could play. They had the gear they couldn't play. <laughs> um so it was it was going to be time to uh, I guess you know um, I guess time to go to school I mean go move on to a higher higher learning education uh-huh. I you know I graduated when I was sixteen um, I wasn't necessarily that smart I have one of those birthdays that puts you in the next class uh-huh. and also when I came from Philadelphia they had skipped me a year a combination of things so I graduated young uh-huh. um, and it seems like you know um, don't ask me why I don't know anything more than anybody else. But um, um, so the, the, the thing was, um, you know, the, the, the people I met, it was actually through a girl, actually. 
that ended up being a really dear friend, even a girlfriend for a while, but like her family um, happened to be involved in Atlantic Records. But the thing that was so interesting about that relationship, it wasn't really in the beginning for her as a girl. It was because I would do stuff, play stuff at her house and stuff, and she would like critique it and tell me how to do it better. Yeah. And all of a sudden, and I was just like, what are you doing? Like, how do you know this? And then as I got to know her, she's brilliant. Anita Wexler was her name. She's brilliant, brilliant person, brilliant, yeah. her mind. Um, so that's that was the beginning of that. And then it, when it came time, you know, it was more like um, the family was like, um, and I knew nothing about her in the, in the record business. I knew nothing about any of it. Didn't know her mm -hmm. dad was in it, da, da, da. But um, her mother took a liking to him and was like, you know, when you go to college, and I'm thinking, really, who's going to college? <laughs> like, who's going to do that? Yeah. And um, <laughs> uh, she's like, yeah, well, you know, it'd be great to have a job, well, you know, to help you pay for this. So, that, so they offered me a job doing that. Um, but it wasn't in the studio originally. It was actually... You know, um, the dad, Jerry Wexler, he didn't really trust me. Just throw you in, you know. Yeah, and so they put me in um, a thing where, like, you know, back in the day with distribution, record distribution, they would have to have a, a place to distribute the records from, the vinyl. Uh -huh. And that stuff was heavy. And then there was, you know, all the record stores you had to sell it to. So they put me in a, a, a job with their distributor on Long Island City. Uh -huh. And so, the, and there I learned a lot. I learned a lot there, which I wasn't expecting to learn, but. It came, mm -hmm. and I was willing. And the thing was, what I learned was, there's record companies like Tower Records, Sam Goody, uh, you know, the, I forgot the names of all the companies, but all these mom and pop joints. And what would happen is you'd walk around with a cart, and you'd have an invoice, and you'd have the names of the records that Atlantic had available, and then they would have orders. And like, for I'll pick a, I'll pick a group, for instance, that was Buffalo Springfield, for instance. I'd never mm -hmm. heard of them. And there it was, but every day I'd go and I'd fill the cart and every store I'd be putting 50 or 100 of those suckers in there. And I'm going, this has got to be really cool. So what, what I'm saying is like years later, we have SoundScan and before SoundScan, you know, all the record company people would go, oh, the record's really hot. It's selling all these, right? Selling all these records. And then there was nobody who could really tell. Right. And I'm in the warehouse. I can tell what's really selling. Because this one record, or, two, or like I get two or three of this one other record, I'm like, what is that? Nobody ever buys this one. What is this? Every day I'm putting 100, 200 of these. This record is hot. So I, you know, I, I guess I learned the true thing what's behind the record companies. And um, that's also why I was getting my pickings for my friends. Because yeah, <laughs> I go back home with all the hot stuff that nobody sure. knew about because, you know, it was just there. I was like, I don't know what this is, but everybody's buying it. So let's just check it out. <laughs> that's a cool way to do it. Yeah, it was it was great, and so that was that part of the thing. And then I think I, I um somewhere along the line we didn't. I'm, look, I'm a, I'm a young kid in the summer, and it's like I don't want to. I I got to show up late. What can I say? And they really got pissed about. It. And I was like, well, then I don't want to do this anymore. And I didn't. And somehow I ended up over at the uh, the recording studio with this interesting, very interesting job. Um, you had uh, the dynamic was Jerry Wexler, Ahmed Erdogan, and his brother Nesui Erdogan. And then there's Tom Dowd in the studio part. And Atlantic Records was all one building. Uh -huh. The whole record company and then two studios and two mass rooms in the back. And there's the whole enchilada. There ain't no more. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> well, actually, on the, on the third floor, they had, so that was on the whole second floor, 1841 Broadway. And then in the back where the studio started, that was 11 West 60th Street, which was around the corner. And on the third floor, they had the, they had this, I call them the suits, the accountants and stuff. Uh -huh. So it was all right there. And the thing is, I knew nothing about any of it. So I didn't have any reference to say good, bad or whatever. I was like, this is just crazy. A lot's going on here. And I would come after school and go in at night is what I would do. And then, um, so the job they gave me was, um, and Tom Dow was in charge of this. They gave me this job of tape duplicating. And so I would duplicate, you know, their whole catalog, I, you know, when they would master it and stuff. Mm -hmm. I would have to make like seven copies to send to foreign countries so they could master it. Uh -huh. And uh, so that was just the job. And all I was doing was going through their catalog nightly and hearing all this music that I would never hear. There's no way you would ever get to hear that, you know. I mean, it's just like because some of the records are hits and some of them are not. Uh -huh. Actually, I should reverse that. Most of them are not. Uh -huh, and then right. the handful that are hits. I mean, that's really the truth. Yeah. Um, people don't really understand that. My stuff is really good. My stuff is as good as that. Yeah, but it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Unfortunately, 90% of the stuff will never see the light of day. I'm not trying to be put a bad thing on it, but I, that's all I've ever seen in general, you know? Yeah. I always talk about how not everybody's going to be Steph Curry. 
You know, there's a million basketball players out there, but not everybody can be Steph. There's a million kids that are really good on the block yeah. that'll never, unfortunately, without all the parts and pieces, they're never going to get have that day in, in the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so, you know, one of, one of the records I did find, though, that was so crazy. I remember when I put it on, I was doing like the tape. I was, it was like, it was the first record by a guy named, it said, Dr. John, the Night Tripper. Oh, wow. And so... There I was, I was like, what can this possibly be? That sounds really weird. Uh-huh. And I put that on to do the tape copy, and I just sat there, and he went, they call me Dr. John. And I was like, what the fuck? I was just like, <laughs> ah, this is what I get to do for, for work? <laughs> That's so cool. Wow. <laughs> and years later, I was, and years later, I got to do that record. I got to do a producer record with Dr. John, and also, I did Right Place, Wrong Time with him. Oh, I didn't know that. Which is one of his biggest records. Yeah, Yeah, I got got those. (laughs) So you went into this not really knowing who any of these people were, like Tom Dowd or Reef or any of them. So looking back, it seems like a lot of your career, you've just done things and you haven't been afraid. You've made changes and just gone forward. And so many people are afraid of change and they're afraid of trying to do things they don't know how to do. But you seem just to keep going forward and just doing it. I think that whole attitude is what really drives me. It's like if I once I do know it's there, I, I just need to know how to do it, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is actually how I learned how to how to be on the board. Actually, it was watching Tom Dowd at nights. He was mixing. He'd be mixing. The whole concept was weird, by the way. I just I, I you know there was all these groups that no longer exist. But to me, when I was a little kid, they were gods to me, like the oh, young hi. rascals. And 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 I'm like, oh my god, the young rascals. Oh my god. And then they're there. And I'm watching a session with them, and I'm watching a session, and, and all of a sudden I'm realizing, you know, one night I was, I'm supposed to be doing this tape copy, you remember, yeah, down hi. the hall. And I keep running down the hall to look, to see what they're doing, because the tape is playing for 20 minutes, so it doesn't need me. Yeah, I'm supposed to be doing homework. Homework can wait. So I'm down <laughs> the hall watching this whole, all this stuff go down, and there's a Reef Mardine with Tommy and the Young Rascals, and they're all doing stuff. And, and I noticed one thing that was really interesting, besides the board, I, I noticed that Everybody kept talking to the guy in the seat at the board. Mm-hmm. This was just an observation from, from afar. And I was like, what's going on here? So that would be Tom or Reef that was sitting right in the middle. Uh-huh. And the group would muddle around and they'd go do a take. They'd talk to everybody, come back, and they talked to the guy in the middle. And I went, wow, that guy is really important because everybody's communicating with him. Uh-huh. Like he seems to be the guy that is the guy. And uh, I was like, wow, I guess if I would trying to get in this, I'd like to be that guy. So, you know, like I said, Reef was a producer, so was Tom a producer. Mm-hmm. Atlantic raised producing engineers. We weren't just engineers, we were producers, because it was like, who else would know anything if you bring a band in? Right. There's nobody else here, you're it. Right, yeah. <laughs> but I was soon to learn that what, what I observed, I was, later I went, wrong position. That's the guy who has to work all the time. Everybody else gets breaks. You're the guy always working. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's kind of how that, I guess, ended up tooling up. But watching Tom Dowd, he was mixing um, the one record. And, he, and, he, and the thing about this was just interesting. Tom never really said, now here, kid, this is how this works. He uh-huh. didn't work that way. He would just do what he did, and you had to figure out what he was doing and catch on. And it wasn't like he was playing a game. He's working. Right. It's like I said to you earlier, there's a structure and there's a, uh, there's a method to it. It's not that, right. it's not that deep. And if you have a basic mind that really is kind of organized like that, you will catch on. You can't not catch on. I mean, well, unless you're not going to catch on. Right, right. Um, and then you go do something else. Yeah, exactly. In this world, he's like, oh, this is what goes on. You can you can watch. He never said any. I never said anything to him. I would never ask him anything. Uh-huh. I'd watch everything he would do. And then I would come in before school, and I would go try to do everything I saw him do. And, and they told me, the Atlantic, they said, you know, we got these – they had these eight-track tapes in the library. They went, we have these demos. You can play with them if you want to figure out how that works, but uh-huh. don't touch anything else. So I'd put tapes up and try to figure out how to make things work. And um, and the thing is, I would keep doing it until I couldn't do it. And then I would ask Tom a question, maybe days later, like one question that mm-hmm. was really key for me stopping me, and he would just go. And he, it was there is the desired result. He would go, he'd look at me like, how do you know how to ask that question? And I was like, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be the kid that came here and every two seconds, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Because that's, right. that's not on his level. Right. I mean, after all, the guy delivered the atom bomb. So that's not really on his level. Yeah. Right? But I didn't know that then. No. I, I love Tom Dowd. 
my story with him is he uh, was, I think he got the Les Paul Award or that was inducted into the Hall of Fame at the Tech Awards. And so we developed a phone relationship over a few years. And he found out that I was afraid of flying. And there was one year that I was flying to AES for, you know, in New York. And he called me and he was in Miami. And he said, I just wanted to let you know. Your flight tomorrow is going to be fine. I checked out the weather and it's all going to be smooth sailing. Wow. And that just like touched my heart that someone, you know, that he would care enough to call me, that he would check wow. and then call me and let me know. That's so Tom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. So, yeah, that relationship kind of went till eventually why he was mixing one. This is this how it goes. He was mixing uh, coming towards the end. And I was, I saw him using patch cords and everything. And I figured a lot of it out and I, when he was about to do something, I ran up and I, I offered him the patch cord because I was watching what he was doing. And uh -huh. he was just like, whoa, this kid is on something. And then so he suggested to them that, that they start giving me a little more responsibility. It was all, if it was off of his recommendation that they started opening, the, you know. That's very cool. So have you always been driven like that to learn uh, and be better? Unfortunately, yes. And I say unfortunately because there's another way to do this, which is by the book. You sit down and you read the stuff. I've always been one who just kind of like, I fidget until, well, have I always been that way? Yeah. When I was a little kid, I had these little, a little model train my mom bought me, right? Uh -huh. Not a model train, electric train. Uh -huh. And then it kind of, something broke on it. So you know what I did? I took it apart to fix it. And did you fix it? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. It was in pieces, but the point was I was driven to try right. to do that. And that's, that's just me. I just always, I need to see how it works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you went from Atlanta. How long were you there? Atlantic Records? Yeah. Uh, I was there probably about 20, uh, no, about 15 years maybe. Uh-huh. And then did you go directly to start working with Timbaland? No, not at all. I was, I was, in, I was wandering. I left Atlantic Records. I, I left. They, they went through this. So, they, so in this process... Atlantic Studio Record Company, blah, 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 in the early 70s, they split and moved the operation to Rockefeller Plaza. Uh-huh. Um, they were part of Warner Brothers, Warner Communications. They mm -hmm. did the merger, all this stuff. And they said to me, you know, you can come with us to the offices and you can be an A&R and you can do all that stuff. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I enjoy being in the studio and playing around and having fun. Uh -huh. And so I really don't want to be a part of that. So I, I lost, when they did that separation, I lost that trail, uh -huh. you know, to being a record exec, basically. That's that's the path to being a record exec. Right. And I'd be, I'd be doing that, that, that little hop <laughs> around the town yeah. from this company and that. But, I, but so no, I, so I stayed in the record company and then I became knock on wood, not knock on wood, it already happened. I don't have to knock on wood. What am I talking about? And then I was, you know, I started making some really great records, rock and roll records. You know, the Foreigner stuff was great. Um, uh -huh. Genesis, um, Peter Gabriel, just in that 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 whole era came, and I was the hot hand. Were they seeking you out then? At that point, everybody wanted you. Well, to so so here's the thing: because it was, I worked for Atlantic Records. Still, I did. I wasn't an independent contractor. Uh -huh. Okay. I was working for Atlantic Records, and their studio, because they owned it, they didn't try to push it. They weren't really billing people right. It was a very, it was a very interesting dynamic. Uh -huh. You know, like what they would do. Like for instance, I worked with the Stones for two years mm -hmm. on the Love You Live album, and also um, on the uh, Some Girls album. I did some of the stuff on that and mixed a couple of those and recorded with them. But the reason it, it started was because Ahmed had signed the Stone, the, the Rolling Stones, and part of his deal was he was like they had um, this. They they must have had hmm, eighty. 100 tapes or whatever from all their wow. touring. Uh -huh. Well, because they were touring in Europe, you know. Sure, the yeah. And they were recording every one of those yeah. things. And they were trying to put a record together. And he's like, well, just use the studio. I won't charge you. So they were like, that's a good deal. Uh -huh. Well, it's the studio. I mean, he doesn't have to charge him. But meanwhile, you know, he's pocketing right. something else instead. I don't know. I didn't say that. <laughs> but it, it all makes sense. So that's how the studio was kind of run. It had its own, what do you call mission. Uh -huh. um, so anyway... So that so yeah so like I spent two years with the Rolling Stones for that reason because I was just there yeah and then you know we did some of the records they were doing and blah 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 but so uh, yeah and then because of that you know the English invasion you know the the second wave that came in the eighty uh, the early eighties there I was part of that uh -huh. or the late seventies early eighties yeah um, so I was a part of that and I was making some nice hits and I was producing records and I was and also that was the period of time I was doing all the 
uh, funk stuff with like Slave and all the R&B acts. And I was just, I was just, I had the hot hand, uh-huh. you know, and I was in the middle of it all. And I was just, there I was, and it was happening and life was good. And as time, as, as, as the eighties rolled into the end of the eighties, a, a new music appeared on the scene and Atlantic wasn't really in it yet. Right. And it was the, the rap scene. Uh-huh. So we weren't doing much of that over there. So like life kind of turned around, you know, Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons were downtown doing it in other studios and I didn't know, you know what I mean? So life kind of flipped around. So there, I spent, I spent a bunch of years actually, I bought a tape machine. I had a 24 track tape machine in my home. Uh-huh. I had a little console in my home. Um, so I would be the early, you call it the bedroom, whatever, but I, right. but it was a real console. Uh-huh. I sectioned out a whole piece of my living room for it. And my kids were like, they were cool with it. People <laughs> would come over, I'd record. Uh, it just was, the world was changing too fast. And I, you right. know, there was a Sinclavier, the digital revolution, everything was just changing quickly. Yeah. So I started doing um, posting and jingles to, you know, to keep my family going, uh-huh. basically. Because when I left Atlantic, I got numerated pretty good. I was there for a lot of years. So it was worked out, that worked out well, but as you know, it doesn't last forever. Right. And so I had to move over to a different type of thing. Now, what happened in the in this posting world and this jingle world unlike the records you could be very free form and we would take our time and we'd make sure things were right and we would enjoy everything and we'd feel everything the music uh-huh solo solo's not good let's do it again let's do the solo for six hours until we get it till it really feels that way let's face it it's a record it's going to be recorded forever it's going to be heard forever let's get it right mm-hmm. when i moved to the other world over there they were like you have this much time to do this. Okay, boom, 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 it's done. I'm like, but there's all these imperfections. Nobody's paying attention. Shh, quiet. Wow. Just quiet, Jimmy. Because I kept thinking, wow, I'm going to learn some new stuff. And it was like, every day I'd be like, I'm waiting to learn. And it's like, we're done. And I'm like, oh, I see what's going on. Tomorrow, we had to do it all again because you guys said the, gu- you said the, the sponsor's name wrong. Okay, so we did like maybe eight hours worth of work on tape and all the stuff and bouncing and all the stuff. And they were like, we got to do we got to do that part again. Why? Because he said the name wrong. And I'm like, are you shitting me? And it's like, no, that's what we do here. Uh It's like, but all that other stuff, those crackles and all that bad stuff I heard yesterday that nobody's caring about. And it's like, oh, I see. So it's not about that. It's only about product. Right. And so we are a byproduct to sell the product. So. Boom. And, you know, with the, um, with the posting, it was like, though, I was with a guy named Peter Fish. He's, uh, he's passed now. Fantastic. And he would do like the CBS, like, you know, you know, like, okay, so like, let's just say um, a bad example, but I'm going to have to use it. Okay. The kid sh- shoots those people in Illinois, right? Uh-huh. Okay. So basically, Peter's job was to, they call me, go, boom, emergency. You got to tell them, kid shoots da 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 on the news tonight at 11. Mm-hmm. That was it. So these we're doing, and he's putting music behind that. And we're putting boom, and I'm going. So we were always working, doing stuff for the moment. But that piece that we did is never going to be heard again. So nobody really cares about the details. So I'm. This is going somewhere, by the way. So, <laughs> so when I my my life moved on, and I'm trying to actually get out of the whole. I uh, I did this work in this Japanese factory with a whole bunch of other people. It was before karaoke existed. Um, and it's called karaoke. It's not called karaoke, uh-huh. as Americans put it. Because uh-huh. they kept saying, we we're like, why are we, why are we spending all this time? And they paid us no money, by the way. They were like 15 bucks an hour. And we were just re-recording real records. Oh, uh, hi. Wow. Uh, John Stork. You may know John Stork. Of course you yeah, know John Stork. Yeah. Right. So John Stork, who helped... I know John because when we redid Atlantic Studio B, I got to know John real well. Uh-huh. And John shows up at that factory because they were going to probably change. They had the old original hit factory in New York City. They had four rooms running. We were just redoing records, all the parts with real musicians. And if there were strings, we would put strings. It wasn't synthesizers. And they were wow. spending the money. And we're like, why are you doing this? And they go, karaoke, you know, <laughs> karaoke, karaoke. And I'm like, what is that? And then we would do that. So anyway, John walks in one day. And I see him and I go, John, he goes, and he always tells me this story because I don't really remember it. He goes, I I remember walking in and you said, John, I'm making records I actually made before again. (laughs) (laughs) And he thought that was funny. I thought it was, I didn't know what it was. But um, (laughs) the point is there was a lot of speed involved in that and a lot of um, uh, texture training 
trying to get the same sound because we tried to make them sound as close. Like it was a Motown record. We tried to make it sound like the Motown record. Mm -hmm. And you'd hire a guitar player for three hours or four hours just to do every little guitar part. Uh So that's what I learned there. And with that, with the jingle, with the speed, when I fell back into um, the situation and I met Timbaland and Jodeci and Missy Elliott and Genuine and all that stuff was all in this big, it was like a big tank in Rochester. And the thing was, they had so much talent up there and nobody was anybody yet, but they needed speed. Uh Like we did about 300 records in two years. Wow. I mean, soup to nuts. And the thing was, it was all about speed. And the speed I gained, I learned that knowledge with the jingle stuff. Yeah, hi. You know, learning how to just be, you know what? It's okay. We can keep it moving. Yeah, hi. Wow. That's kind of hold that whole thing. So you have worked, as you were just mentioned, some of them, a huge variety of genres. Do you have favorite people that you've worked with or favorite songs that you worked on? Um, hmm. I mean... It's funny because I, when I say it and then I go back and listen, I go, eh, it's not that great. Um, but some of the favorites are one of the ones I really love that I did. It was one of the first ones that I did that was, I call bigger than me. The record was just so huge and massive that I couldn't believe I was actually on it. I'd never done anything that was, a, I was never a part of anything that was that grand to uh-huh. me. It was the Hole in Oats She's Gone record, which um, was really very special. I love that record. Um Another record is uh, Justin Timberlake's Crimey River. I like that record mm-hmm. a lot. Once again, it's just had textures and stuff that sure. I could, you know. And there's a lot of the slave records I did that I really actually like a lot as well. Funk stuff, you know. Was it hard to change from people like, you know, Hall and & Oates and Foreigner and Led Zeppelin to Missy Elliott and Genuine and Jay-Z? Was it a hard transition or were you just ready and up for the challenge? <laughs> Well, it didn't happen overnight, like you just said. <laughs> like well, way- I know it didn't, but it's it's <laughs> no, but- it's so different, right? To go from one to the well, other. So there was a training period in my life between the '80s and into the '90s to watch how new music was being made. I had to, once again, I had that desire to be a part of what was going on, right? Um, and when the opportunities came, I was able to f- fill the, the the spot. But like I said, it didn't happen overnight. So I was used to hearing the new music. I was used to hearing the new funk, if you will. Uh Um, And, you know, when a guy like Timberland comes along and he's just doing stuff that's just totally different. And and to be fair, I was doing the Jodeci album when I met him. That's how I got in the door. And he was a part of that crew. And so, you know, Jodeci is crazy. That's just basically old Uh R&B. There's nothing new about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, So here's the other thing. As a kid in Atlantic Studios... One day I'm doing modern jazz quartet. One day I'm doing Aretha Franklin. One day I'm doing Roberta Flack. One day I'm doing a New York rock and roll ensemble. One day I'm doing, you know what I'm saying? So down to even like a Zeppelin record once. I'm saying, so I was always doing all these different things and they all were the same. They're not the, don't, no, well, not interpreters. I'll say it the wrong, I might be saying it the wrong way, but when you're doing the actual project or you're doing the actual work, even though they're all different genres, you still approach them the same way. Right. No, I now, get that. You may do stuff differently while, once you're in there, but right. it's still, you know, it's music and it's got to be recorded. And that's really, to be, keep it real simple, that's the basic bottom line. Right. And you have your framework, right? So you always have the same framework. You just adjust it based on who you're w- well, working with? No. I mean, you start at one end? Well, okay. So it's okay. So let's go backwards a little okay. bit. Okay. So. Go back. Let's go back to a time when you had to put microphones <laughs> up and you didn't sample shit and you just actually people played. Uh-huh. How about that? Okay, so I'm saying they yeah. would set the tone by what they were playing. Sure. I just had to put the mics in the right places and then go, well, let's see. This doesn't sound right for this type of music, so I'll remove the mics. But I, but you're right. I had a basic place I would start. Right. But I was willing to and be open enough to, to let it go where it had to go instead of being like, ah. Because there were people that were like this. You guys aren't playing the right because it doesn't sound right. Huh? That's like your job, bro. Like your job is to make, to help them sound right. But there were people that would be like, I do it this way. And you guys aren't fit. It's not fitting in my format. So it must be what you guys are doing. <laughs> no, it's a true story. Wow. Well, so isn't it basically your job as an engineer or mixer or whatever to realize the artist's vision in the best sounding way possible? One would think, yes. But yeah, no, that's, I mean, to me, with no artists, you don't have anything. You got a bunch of equipment. So really, 
you want to bring out the best that they can be and have have it shine. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. What's the major difference between working with an established artist and working with a brand new group? Um, that's an interesting question. It only took us 38 minutes for you to say it was an interesting question. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, what, what I'm saying, what I mean is like, okay, so that could be a, a, a two-sided question. So here it is. Probably the biggest difference between working with established artists and a nobody, theoretically, mm-hmm. is that you kind of have to listen to the, the established artists and you have to approach them differently because they've done it and they they expect a little bit of respect that way. Mm-hmm. Like I say, blah, 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 blah. And even if you think not, you're like, okay, let's see how we go about this. And you have to kind of go with, about them with kid gloves. You know, not saying they're wrong or right. It's just that they deserve that respect. Right. And they can go anywhere they want to go and they can use anybody they want to use. Okay. Right. So right. you to be in this part, that's the part you said earlier about the people thing. Mm-hmm. That's that's when that comes in really heavily. Um, and then if I'm working with somebody who doesn't really know, it's like I respect them as musicians and whatever. But if I can get there faster than you can, because I've done this a bunch of times and I have a couple little tricks up my sleeve uh-huh. that might help us that you don't know about, I'm going to push you to do those things. I might not listen as much to you because... Well, quite honestly, it's not sounding that great right now. Uh-huh. If it was sounding that great, okay, I've been with bands, by the way. There's a group called Black Heat that I once did with me and um, a producer, Joel Dorn. And he begged me to stay after hours to do this band. He was doing a favor for somebody, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, we'll sit and we'll, we'll have fun. We'll just have a laugh. And these guys came in, and let me just tell you what kind of laugh we had. Mouths hanging open, just like they were that good. Wow. And they ended up being one of my first groups that I was actually producing and making money with. But I remember they were in there. We just looked at each other like, what the fuck? So there was nothing to do. Yeah, hi. I mean, there there was things to do. But like I described before, their trick was they were tight as fuck. Yeah, hi. And they sounded great. That was their trick. And now it's time for me to listen. Right. And what can I do with this to make it more? And and so what's the difference? So I'll give you another interesting, very interesting, I think it's interesting story. There was a time I was doing a record with a group called The Spinners, and uh, this is when disco was kind of going away, but I wasn't making disco records, even though Atlantic had that ability, they had the Bee Gees and all that stuff. Uh-huh. I wasn't making the disco records, I was making rock and roll records. Uh-huh. ACDC, I'm making, that's and that's the sound that I'm getting on drums. I'm not getting that dumb, <laughs> I wasn't getting that sound. So they hired me to do The Spinners, and the producers were all, they had like their panties in a wad or something and they didn't really trust that i and and all the studio musicians were there and the, and the drum sound i was getting was really like open and they're like oh what's going on this is not good and so they kept calling the a and r guys going are you sure this guy can do it and i heard them doing it, and after a while i got really offended and i decided this was one of those days i decided i don't care i'll get fired today because i'm not going to take this uh-huh. i know what i can do and the way you guys are talking to me is very disrespectful and so eventually, I was like, look, let's just try to do this. Da, da, da. He goes, yeah, let's see if you can get a kick sound like that, if you can. And I was like, Ooh. oh. And I went, you're right. I can't. And I just walked out. And I went, okay, so let's see. They got about they got about eight musicians in there. So that's going to cost the studio that money. And I'm thinking, you just fucked up, Jimmy. <laughs> you really <laughs> just fucked up. Um, but I just didn't, I didn't, I was to that point where I was like, I, I'm, I don't care. And um, and the other side of that story was there's a group called Slave that I was doing like their uh, their fourth album. They'd been away from me for a while. And we came back and I had like the record, not the record of the year, but like I had that record that we made after being rejected from that. And so how did they treat me? They treated me like help us. Yeah. And I was able to be me. So right. you know, it's it's a it's it's like I said, it's an interesting question. It has so many parts to it. Right. When you start with a new artist, someone you haven't worked with before, how do you establish mm-hmm. the relationship and, you know, the trust that you need to be able to work with them and do what you need to do? Uh, I start by hopefully having the time to have a meeting, you know, have a meeting with them and talk to them about mm-hmm. who they think, you know, I always say, who do you think you are? No, who do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I start by doing that to understand where they want to go, where their vision is. And how they think they're going to get there based off of what they have or don't have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if everything coincides together and it works, it's like, well, let's just do this. If everything doesn't, then already I can see we're going to have to have some compromises here right. to try to get someplace that 
we can make something that resembles something of quality. Right. And I can't imagine that you're a good fit with every artist that comes to you or that there's got to be personalities. There's got to be factors that you don't, you don't really want to work with someone just because you're not the right person. They need to go see someone else. And that would probably be a better fit. Does that happen? That has happened to me. And actually one of the people that, um, he's my best friend to this day, actually, uh, Kevin Rudolph. Um, before he did Kevin Rudolph, he was, a, he, he, um, he came to me. Well, he didn't come to me. His mother tricked me, actually. And she, he had a deal <laughs> on another label. He, he was called, I forgot the name of it, but he sold a little few records and, you know, but she, she tricked me. She goes, there's this kid. I want you to listen to it. Tell me what you think. And I heard, and I was like, this is really fire. And she goes, yeah, that's my son. I was like, oh, great. And by the way, that's really the best way to do that kind of stuff, too, if you ask me. Because if she said it's my son right away before I even heard it, I would have been, my ears would have been in a place. Sure. Yeah. And um, anyway, I loved it. And then he, he um, we got together. We loved each other. And then he started um, bringing all the stuff to my studio in New York City and, uh, and setting up for the album. And then as we're going through it, I'm, I'm beginning to help him do what I do, which is like, we should probably do this and do this. And he wouldn't do any of it. He just wouldn't do any of it. He was doing it his way. Uh-huh. And after a while, about a bunch of days, I was like, you know, I believe that nobody can make this record that you want to make but you by yourself. So I, I suggest that, you know, and the thing is, I was, I was kind of doing a lot of work. So it wasn't like I needed the work because that's right. important. You know, I was being very candid. I'm like, I'm spending a lot of time with you, but you're not really taking any of my ideas. Not that it has to be, but only you can make this record. Right. And he, he, he went home and he made the record. And um, that wasn't Let It Rock, though, but, it, but something in that whole um, interaction between the two of us, we kind of had a liking for each other. Uh-huh. And a desire to work with each other in the future. Well, that's very cool. That's what came out of that. Yeah. 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 Cool. One thing I talk a lot about on these podcasts is work-life balance. So, Jimmy, do you mm. have a work-life balance? You seem to be working all the time. Um, <laughs> I don't really have an answer for that. <laughs> um, I think, I mean... The thing is, there's so much stuff to do that's not really work, but it's work. Yeah. Like with the computers and there's stuff and there's programs and there's things and there's there's so much to learn now, not just recording. Very little recording people on a microphone. There's like all this other technology that keeps coming out and it keeps turning around. Right. And once again, for me, I just want to understand what's going on. So I'm constantly chasing it. Not necessarily chase it to say it's the best thing that ever happened. I just need to see it. I need to see the, you know, the 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 dog run. That's sure, all. Yeah. And that's so. I would say based off of that, I'm always doing something that's got something to do with this. Right. Now it's the NFTs, and now it's. I mean, right. There's so much. And there's so much. There's so much. It's hard when you're so interested in so many aspects, and it is changing all the time. So how do you not? continue to, you know, try to stay abreast of what's happening. And you've been in the music industry for a long time. How do you stay creative? Um, I guess it's just a thread that runs and I tune into as much music as, there, as, as I can um, to see what the world is doing, mm-hmm. to see what I like, to see what I would like to do if, you know, if I'm doing a record or whatever. It's like, it's still the same game. You pick references of things that you see and things that you hear. And then you kind of, in your own head, you go, okay, I'd like to have something that kind of goes like this. And you, you know what I mean? And then you wait for the opportunity to find like either the front man or the band or the whatever, where you can use all that stuff that you've actually been filtering around Uh in your head. That's pretty much it. Do you like working with brand new bands? Actually, I do. Why? I do because there is no mold. The mold is not set yet. And it's, it's wide open as to what can happen. And the other thing is everybody's not looking. You know, when, when everybody's looking, it's really tough to make a record or so because um, everybody's got an opinion. Ah, you know what I yeah. mean? And it's like um, everybody's got a part to play. And, you know, what I did learn in Atlantic was like everybody should play their part mm-hmm. and let everybody play what they can do. And I think you'll come up with superior product. Right now, the lines are so diluted. The A and R guys telling you how to write a song, and the you know the publishers telling you how to produce it, and all the above, and everybody's just going in circles. And um, you guys figure out how to figure out the tour when you're going to do that. You guys figure out how to do this and do that when you do this. And you like let the people over here do this. P- 
pick the people that you believe can do that for you and don't do it by reading the back the back of other records <laughs> oh they did it so we should use them uh-huh. i mean I, I i get a big part of that and i understand how that works but it's like do the research you know like there's a bunch of acts that didn't break that had some really interesting stuff and the producers of those acts maybe might be able to take you to that place that's different than all the other stuff that's out there right right so having a unique sound isn't a bad thing <laughs> that's true if there was someone out there now, a student um, who wants to do what you're doing, what advice mm. do you offer them now before they start their career very early on in their career? Um, that's That, once again, is a very interesting question because things are changing so much and the lines are changing so much. I believe that while just as the mixer, mm-hmm. I believe that to, to me, the producer should be the mixer. Because with your DAW, you can you can sit there and dial that stuff in until you get everything that you want. Uh-huh. It wasn't the case back in the day. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't. That's why you needed a mixer to help you get to the finish line. Now, when you create, you visualize the stuff you created, I think that part of your whole thing is like that you should be able to mix it to a place where it's close to being it. I think that more than ever, I think the songwriting aspect has become a little more, once again, has come to the forefront. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always looked at music and I always go, there's periods when there are, it's the producer, the artist, and then there's a song. And I think right now we're in the, we're in the song phase. Uh Because when I listen to all these records, it's like, I can't really identify most of the artists, but the songs are what's driving people. Right. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The content of the song. And I'm going, okay, so that's where we are. There was a time when Timberland, Pharrell, and all those guys, it's like they were making the beats that everybody mm-hmm. must have. Right. Regardless of what you put on top of it. Even though they had some good top liners, but it's like that was the era of the producer. Mm-hmm. You know? And then there's the era when, like, there's just the performer, you know, the singers that are singing their asses off and bringing the stuff to you, you know? Yeah. That's... um. Which, by the way, I didn't touch on this, but that's also one of the things that I was blessed to have. With Donny Hathaway, Roberta Flack, Aretha Franklin, people like that, that I got to work with, they were interpreters of the highest level. Uh-huh. And what you had to do was make sure that you got a clear representation of this piece of history, that moment, because that's really, that's really what it was. Yeah. And, um, you know, you don't have a lot of that now. Now you have a lot of chopping stuff together. People sing one line, two lines. People chop it together. They put effects on it, da-da-da-da, and they call it a vocal. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying it's just a different way of going about it, which is why maybe some of the stuff doesn't sound as interesting. Mm-hmm. Did you know? Did you know? <laughs> so the brain, here's how it works. So the brain, once it hears something, it'll know all the variations of what it just heard. Uh-huh. So when you fly a vocal... I want to take you to the home. Boom. Okay, that's it. And when you fly that that many times, the first time the brain goes, got it. Here's it again. It goes, I've heard that. And then the next time it goes, I've heard that. And next time it goes, I've heard that. And it start, the brain starts relaxing like, yeah, okay, what the fuck? I ain't hear nothing. And, and if you sing that same thing eight different times because it was on tape and you had to sing it, mm-hmm. every time there's a slight variation, the brain picks it up and it stays alert. How interesting. I didn't know Did that. Did you know that? I did not know that. I don't know that. that either. I made that up, but it, it makes good. sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. See, see, see. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I started doing these podcasts because I love this community, um, Pro Audio. The people in it are just the coolest people, and I want I wanted everybody to know how cool all of you were. So my question for you now, what does community mean to you? Which community? You can choose. It could be a family. It could be friends. People have different answers. Some talk about pro audio. It's just, mm. what's community for you? Um, I'm not really operating in a community lately. Yeah. Do you miss doing it? I, I do. I do. I do. I do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I totally do, but it's my circumstances where I am. I'm stuck down here in Florida, which ain't a bad thing. Uh-huh. Um. But there's not a lot of community down here. You know, there's like there's a big Latin community around here. I right. don't really speak Latin, and I'm not really a part of that. So I'm I'm really pulling my community from Los Angeles, yeah, and above, you know, and so forth and so on. And um, and being a New York kid, that's it's, it's all kind of uh, I'm just kind of where I am. I just put it that way. Yeah. And I'm blessed to be in the game, and I'm blessed to be able to be doing this kind of stuff still. Yeah. Okay. Last question. And I ask everybody. 
So I'm going to come see you in Miami and we're going to go eat. Okay. I never make decisions if I'm not working. So where are we going to go eat? What are we eating? What are we drinking? What kind of music are we listening to? And what are we talking hmm. about? Hmm. It's <laughs> I can't hey, this is not a typical podcast. No, 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 that, that's fine. And I, I, I have a place that I take everyone when they come, everyone. Okay. I can say, and, and so far I've had nothing but rave reviews over many of the years. So you really asked me where we're going to go? Because mm -hmm. I have one of three places, okay. but I'm going to take you to uh, Little Havana. Cool. I like Cuban that's food. That's Cuban food. Yeah. Okay. okay. Great. Supposedly one of the better ones down here. Okay. Um, Quick in and out. What are we eating? What are we drinking? Well, you can eat whatever's on the menu if you want. Okay. What are we drinking? Uh. The, 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 the mojitos? Are we drinking water? Are we drinking This is water not going to work. See, I, I hate making these decisions. Okay, what kind of music are we right. listening to? Uh, well, if we're going to be in there, I mean, we can listen to music at the studio first, or we can listen to all kinds of crap. Okay. Good crap. Okay. Good crap. Good crap is We good. can listen to Atmos stuff. That's interesting. I haven't listened to any Atmos stuff yet. You haven't? Mm -mm. Oh, well, some is good and some isn't anything, but <laughs> yeah, I have got some good sounding stuff. Okay. So that's the music we can do. What was the other question? Okay. What are we going to talk about? See, I always leave that open. As Bruno Mars says, I leave the door open for that one because it really depends on the moment. Any one thing that you can, any one thing you say could take me over here, and any one thing I say could take you over here. So, right. I mean, I don't for one second think that we're going to have a lack of conversation. No, <laughs> there's no, too I much. No, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this has been great. I hope that you come out for my golf tournament October 31st. We're doing a tribute for Alan it? Ed. It's going to be in L.A., Santa Clarita. Oh, wow. So I'll come. Everybody will be there. So I hope you come out. That should be amazing, actually. That should yeah, be great. Yeah, it should be fun. That'd be great to see And then you'll be part of the community. Yeah, no, that's that's I, I like that. Calendar it is. Okay, I'll send you info. So thank you so much. This was great. I love talking to you. I always enjoy it. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of One and Done. Don't forget to check out today's show notes and our YouTube channel for more from our guests and subscribe to our KMD Pro Weekly Resource Guide on kmdpro.com. This podcast is produced by Jules Everson and Stephanie Lamont. Our audio engineer is Corey Klotz. We'll see you next time.